song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Another exciting episode. This is part two of our look at Arn Anderson. We started yesterday with a big picture look at the role Arn had in professional wrestling during the 80s in particular. And, and we uh, take, took a look at, at what kind of makes Arn work, but it was it's hard to do that with Arn because so much of his work, and this is something we mentioned at the beginning of the last episode, his day-to-day work is what makes him spectacular. We'll be getting into that at the end, but we wanted to start with what is a really fun match for me. All right, Paul Jones going out against Jim Verderoso. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Verderoso. This fella is something else. He's a powerlifting champion. He's out of Rome, Georgia. Wow, beautiful. Duck under go behind heel block and takedown by Jones. Another thing we talked about is the fact that Arn Anderson is despite the fake name and uh, even more fake toupee, very much Arn Anderson from the beginning, no matter who he's working with. And I think you noticed that in particular, uh, working with Paul Jones. Yeah, definitely. I enjoyed the hell out of watching this match. Uh, first of all, or number one, I should say, that's kind of an old school wrestling joke. Number one, uh, I thought that uh, Paul Jones was a much better worker in this match than uh, than reports I've heard of him in the past. So uh, it was really a pleasure to watch. And in fact, there were times where you kind of see Arn even being a little green, like he was very solid throughout, but there were a couple times where um, there was a, a atomic drop, an ass bump, as Jim Cornette would say. There was a, an atomic drop where uh, they, they mistimed the lift and Arn kind of went up on his toes too quickly. And Paul Jones could have just like easily, you know, picked him up wrong and they could have both fallen over or whatever, but it was like Jones just adjusted and like they went back down and then went back up and it was super smooth. So I, I thought this was a great example of someone who's, young and already solid working with someone who has the the seasoning to really help bring them along to the next level really helping them kind of fill in some gaps in that already solid outline they've created yeah and his toupee i mean it's it's so bad it's is it the worst thing you've ever seen in a wrestling match or just like top five worst things you've ever seen and to be clear i'm talking about arn who like has plugs later on that kind of work, but this toupee is next level shitty. I mean, he literally looks like Tony Schiavone's older brother uh, in this match, which which is funny because I know they are friends, but I mean, he he does look like a 1980s uh, Tony Schiavone uh, with the particular hairstyle he's rocking. The, uh, the, the hair was definitely the order of the day in this match because Paul Jones too, I think that... Uh, I think that if you held his dress shoes up next to the side of his head, you would find that his hair <laughs> and the shoes were the exact same color. And he's got this just like big, big, fluffy, teased out, just hurting to death hair. There, there, there was definitely a, a good day at the barber shop before this match. And it's funny because like this match takes place in 1982. Arn was born in 1958. So he's 24 and his hair is already mostly gone. And I, I don't want to say not having a full head of hair prevented him from becoming a main eventer, but you can see the ways in which his look will hold him back might not be the wrong word, but it will make it slightly harder of a hill to climb in terms of like the reason, one of the reasons a guy that talented didn't get picked up by the WWE, I think is it, or the, at this time, the WWF or at least the WWF, uh, there you can see why a guy like that wouldn't get picked up but in terms of talent he's definitely he could main event anywhere in the in the country uh or in the world i should say uh, uh maybe not at this point but you can see real talent he's like a, he's very much like a really talented uh 
like shortstop prospect where he can do everything well, but isn't quite like strikes out too much still. Yeah. yeah, He's got the thing where he looks really big and solid already. uh, But he also looks very light on his feet. And I think that's always kind of one of the telling combinations of like, like if you look at Keith Lee in NXT right now, he is a huge son of a gun. Uh, but he is so light on his feet. And I always think that's a real telling sign that, that someone's kind of uh, got what it takes physically to be a great pro wrestler. The next couple of years, he works uh, in uh, Southeast Championship Wrestling, which we talked about last uh, episode. And also he works in uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. And he works in Mid-South under the his actual name, Marty Lundy. What's funny is he actually comes back at some point in 84. For as Arn Anderson, and they explain that he had come under an assumed name to make his way in professional wrestling before he exposed him, like uh, uh, revealed that he was an Anderson. Because the Anderson family, a uh, he strikes bears a striking resemblance to Ole Anderson, and b it's the kind of legacy family that doesn't mean that much to wwe fan like modern wwe fans but the anderson legacy is a really significant one in the history of uh territorial wrestling arn becoming an anderson is a way bigger deal than we realize but it's also interesting because arn is what turns Oli back into a heel you know what i tell you i look at arn it uh, kind of stirs my heart a little bit I tell you, the kid is pretty doggone good. If you look up Arn Anderson and Lee Ramsey on YouTube, you will find a version of this. It's pretty low quality. You can also find it in the Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling television shows on the network. It is uh, March 16th, 1985. It is a match between Arn Anderson and Lee Ramsey. Uh, and it's really great at explaining to you uh, through the actions in the ring that Arn is absolutely an Anderson. Oh yeah, show don't tell. This match is a great example of that in that like Arn is is doing a lot of showing in the ring both in like the way he moves around and the way he interacts with the crowd and the moves he does like literally one of the first moves he does in the match is a hammerlock uh, uh, scoop slam, you know, right onto the guy's back, which is kind of a classic Anderson brothers working the arm hammerlock type move. And uh, so he does it, and then Tony Schiavone and Ole Anderson, who are on commentary, like, draw attention to it and talk about it. Anderson means wrestling, and I had a chance to see Arn Anderson on many occasions. There's no doubt about it. This man is Anderson through and through the way he handles himself in the ring. Well, I think he's got a little bit of, uh, you know, we talk about favoring one another, and uh, my father and uh, his father uh, being brothers. Uh, I guess we do look an awful lot alike, and well, it's the first time I've seen him wrestle for a while. No doubt about it. Ooh, you look an awful lot alike. Arn Anderson in against Lee Ramsey in this match. And I happened to be at this match, and he worked on the arm of Lee Ramsey quite well. As a matter of fact, Lee Ramsey had his arm broken at the end of this match. Well, there again, that's an Anderson trade. You look right now, and you see everything that he's doing is strictly wrestling. Uh, you can say what you want, but when you're in that ring, there's only one answer to it, and that is you've got to wrestle. And Arn is doing just exactly what an Anderson should be doing. He's controlling that man by controlling the arm. He's doing a great job. Arn Anderson continued to hold on the, to the arm of Lee Ramsey. Jim Ross, he, he uses this analogy like 10 times per podcast episode. He always talks about, like, the wrestlers write the music, and then the announcers, if they're any good, uh, they can spontaneously come up with the lyric. 
And I think this match was an incredible example of that, both the work from Arn being so, so good and the commentary from Tony and Oli being so, so good and them both telling the exact same story about how Arn is an Anderson, must be an Anderson. Just look at him. Just look at the way he wrestles. Yeah, and what's funny is, uh, so the the version I gave you, I gave Dave like a playlist of, of matches to watch. And the version I gave you, which is you can find on YouTube, is georgia championship wrestling so it's only talking to tony but the ver- there's also another version when it's manny fernandez talking to, to- tony for the same arn match and talking about how Oli has changed because of his relationship with arn like arn Oh, that's that's so cool, Nick. Sorry, we've just run into like one of the really cool things about like national wrestling in this era is you have like how they were using the angle, the same match for two different angles, both the national angle on Georgia and then the mid-Atlantic angle for just the Carolinas. Like that is so cool. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's hard to like piece everything together when you're looking for it. So it took me a little time to figure this out, but it's like, oh shit, they're talking about the same thing, which is like, like you said, a really cool thing that you don't get to see nowadays. So it was like really fun to see the different story because it's not treat, Arn Anderson isn't treated differently. It's not like he's a heart in Canada, right? Like he's still the bad guy, but they're telling it from the perspective of someone who's friends with, uh, Ole Anderson's partner, Thunderbolt Patterson and Mandy Fernandez. And they're also telling it through Ole's perspective as someone who is like revitalized by the appearance of his cousin, though he keep they keep on accidentally saying they're brothers. Though they honestly look like brothers. Like it's totally it would work either way. But they keep they build out this idea of Arn being this like force of nature as a person both in and out of the ring and it really is established in a really simple like couple i think it's like a three or four minute match between him and this random guy lee ramsey and at the end of the match after he beats the shit out of him and he breaks lee ramsey's arm by wrapping it around a rope and slamming it uh he puts him in the old anderson finisher which is just basically an arm bar um but he holds on to it Manny Fernandez comes down and they get into a fight. And that's how you get to the match, the next match uh, I wanted to talk about, which is... Listen to the music. The music is the man. And the man is the Raging Bull. He's in that ring right now against an Anderson. Iron Anderson. This is the match. It's probably David, the hottest feud in professional wrestling right now between these two men because earlier had a chance to look at when Arn Anderson broke the arm of a, a wrestler. Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, jumped in the ring to help him, and then Arn Anderson got on the Raging Bull, and then it, it's just ballooned from there. And you know, when you first look at Arn Anderson, he and Ole look an awful lot of oh, That's yeah. the first thing Ole said when we looked at, at Arn Anderson in action together with me. It's like he his said, shadow. Yeah, he said it looks exactly like me, no doubt about it. But these and the reason I picked this is it, it ends with Oli attacking Manny um, and Thunderbolt Patterson and uh, Patterson and officially, officially, officially breaking up uh, Thunderbolt Patterson and Oli. Though he uh, and we'll talk about it in a minute. He has this big confrontation with uh, Thunderbolt Patterson. And Oli have a big confrontation about Arn coming in, but this is the like actual dam breaking. 
of it, it, it the way it's told is kind of uh like we said for the reasons we said out of time a little bit but the arn and mandy manny match is good not because it's a good match right I, I i don't think either of us thought it was like an exceptional match but arn is everything that is good in the match like it is a really fun arn match it is not that great of a match and it's way too long for what it is but like arn holds his own against a guy who's supposed to be one of the lead baby faces on the show in a way that like he kind of outshines him he makes him look like Arn should really be the star in this match. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. It's like there, there's, there's a, there's a part at the beginning of the match. If you still, if you want to talk about like typical match structure, that is like sometimes referred to as the shine, right? So typically early in the match, like when when they finally get down to fighting, it's like the baby face always has an answer for anything that the heel does, and like you know the the baby face is like hitting a couple of their exciting spots to get the crowd going and just showing that like all things being equal like they probably should win they really are great exciting etc cetera, etc cetera. this match had the most horrifically boring shine i have seen in my life i was like three minutes into this match and i was thinking god why is nick making me watch this but then arn takes over and goes into the heat and like suddenly, even though the heat is, so when the heel's kind of slowing down and cutting off the baby face and then building anticipation for them to do their next big, you know, exciting exchange of more quickly paced moves. But like this match was bizarro world where the heat was really, really exciting. Where like, even though Arn was just putting him in holds and doing basic stuff, like he was doing all the little things, right? Like his, uh, the way he would work into the holds and then rock back and forth and clasp his hands and, and use his face to kind of sell the beat down that he was giving Manny. That whole part of it was great. So I agree. I thought it was like totally ass backwards. All the times the, the Manny Fernandez was on offense, uh, including when they were headed into the finish. Uh, it seemed like the, the, the crowd was pretty bored and there was nothing really to sink your teeth into. But every time Arn was on top, even though he's just supposed to be like a grinder bad guy in this scenario, like he just, the cream rises. As they yeah, say. he is really transcendently good in matches like this. Basically this entire episode, we're going to be talking about kind of obscure matches because that's where Arn really shines. He is such an exceptional um like everyday player like he reminds me a lot of adrian beltre where adrian beltre if you've ever had been lucky enough to have him be your third baseman is like your favorite player in the history of your team because he plays every player really hard and he's enough of a talent and enough of a unique personality that you like the more time you get to spend with him the more you just love him like we talked about it a bunch last episode Arn is yeah, remember that remember that time people thought that he should have gotten an MVP award that clearly belonged to Barry Bonds. I I'm sorry, Dave, but sorry, just reestablishing, of course, who the, who the good guys and the bad guys are on this show. <laughs> but uh, no, and I say that as somebody who had Adrian Beltre as my third baseman. It, Arn reminds me a lot of that, where it's they're great and they have great quote unquote statistics. Like Arn wins a lot, but. And he's important in segments and, and stuff like that. But it's really the carrying people. When you talk about like Edge is a great performer. I don't know if he's ever carried anybody to a great match. Arn Anderson can carry anyone to a good match. Anyone. Not necessarily like every person can be carried to a great match because some people are just like sticks. But 
Arn Anderson, if you are mobile, like if you are a functioning thing that can be moved, he can have a good match with you. And I think that's what this Arn Anderson, Manny Fernandez matches. It's kind of establishing like, can you make the baby face look good without losing any of your momentum? And that's what you want from a young heel. Because again, Arn Anderson's like 27 at this point. He's very young and you can see where a year, two years, three years down the road, he's going to be the guy as a top heel in a way that like you watch Ric Flair and you watch these other guys and he has that same like quality to him where he's so eminently watchable, wrenching his arm and stuff like that and like pulling back and and doing things that you would do in an actual fight. He's very good at looking like he's in an actual professional wrestling match that would be what it would really be like. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And once again, to, to put over Ron again, I think it speaks to where he came from, really that kind of traditional Southern NWA, like the, the promoters in, in Ron's family and, and Eddie Graham and, and a lot of those Southern promoters like really heavily kind of held on to the tradition of, of quote unquote, like shooting, you know what I mean? Being able to take care of yourself, being like a, a real tough fighter. And even though, Arn wasn't a, a shooter. I think some of those kind of still those those Southern wrestling values that were instilled in him in his formative years kind of still shine through in that respect. You know what I mean? He is the he is the most important character. He's the catalyst. He's the embodiment of the Four Horsemen. He is the star, a straw that stirs the drink. He's all of those things in a way that you think would be Ric Flair, but you watch week to week. Rick Flair and Arn Anderson are just happy that they're on the same side in a way that's like really endearing, but they never quite say it, but it's just implied that like Arn and Rick think that they're the, and to a lesser extent, Tully and Oli are the best people on the show and they deserve everything that they have because they've earned it and then you watch the show and they have and that's like what's cool about arn is is his entire gimmick is doing what he says he's going to do in basically the exact way he says he's going to do it so they do play with that idea and I, I just really like that from the start it is implied he that is the type of performer he is like a uh the thunderbolt the thunderbolt's Patterson, Ole Anderson breakup promo really articulates that. They were joined at ringside by Thunderbolt Patterson. Well, you know, I don't have very much to say. It's just, uh, uh, you know, you got to change your heart, it seems like. You know, uh, uh, I know this is uh, blood is uh, a little deeper than uh, the water and everything, and Ken uh, is run kind of deep and all, but, uh, you know, uh, it was a time when you didn't uh, go for you know, rough tactics like that. And uh, just because he's your kin, you can't uphold what he's doing. What about that? I can understand uh, him being a great wrestler. You know, I've uh, had some time to think. And you ought to know probably as well as anybody the things that have happened to me in my life in the past, what, year, six months, whatever it is. And I think you know that I've uh, done what I could do. But frankly, I finally realized maybe it doesn't do any good. Maybe it's a waste of time. I look at that kid, and I, you're right. I see an Anderson. I see what it can be. I don't see what somebody else wants me to make it. I see what it can be for me. I can see what it might do for that kid. Oli sees Arn as the continuation of a tradition of old-school wrestling, 
though what's funny about Arn is how innovative he is in the ring but like what's great with Oli Oli's implication is it also implies not just because of who he's saying it to but the way he says it that like Arn is racism I don't know how else to put it but like you're looking at me right now I feel like I'm going back in time well maybe that's what we ought to do maybe that's what we gotta do maybe that's what it has to be maybe it's gotta go back in time no no definitely you you listen to that promo and there's this like idea that the way Thunderbolt Patterson is talking to Ole he's like you know I know you you came up from being a dirty redneck but look at you now you're so sophisticated the people the people told me the people said hey look there isn't anything changing. I mean, this is just uh, uh, the, the, the trinket before you, you know, this, this goes way back. And this guy, Arn, is showing up and he's dragging you back down into being your, your dirty old redneck self. I think that's definitely what's coming across. I think, and, and the fact that Patterson was paired with Fernandez, it, 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 it's certainly hard to deny that there are racial undertones and that that's something that Oli was using to get himself and aren't over even bigger as heels. Yeah, they were bad guys because they had like resented the idea of multiculturalism on some level. And not on some level, they, they kind of flat out say, You're looking at me right now, I feel like I'm going back in time. Well, maybe that's what we ought to do. Maybe that's what we got to do. Maybe that's what it has to be. Maybe it's got to go back in time. They are the kind of racists who hate everybody mostly equally like they will also say mean things to you just to hurt you because they're bad guys like they are old school heels and that's what's great with the the thunderbolt and oli promo though it's much better on oli's side than thunderbolt's side way way back i mean uh, 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 are you gonna be a liar oh, oh oli does not let him speak <laughs> there's literally a part where where thunderbolt goes to talk and then oli basically like, puts his hand up in his face and then oli just turns and faces the camera stops looking at Thunderbolt completely and just cuts the rest of the promo right at the camera over Patterson's shoulder. No, I don't call it a liar. I don't call it a liar. I, mean, I say, I realize I just wake up. No, wait a minute. Let me say something. Let me say something. They talk about, get that camera and you say you look at a person's eyes and you can tell whether they're giving you any garbage, BSing you, so they call it. Yeah. You take a look and you're going to see in my eyes, you're going to see the truth. I'm going to just tell you right now, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to touch you. Not yet. I'm going to tell you this. Today is a free day. Today is the day that you and I look at each other and I admit, nice guy that you were, whatever. But I helped you, you can't deny it. The days are over, I'm leaving. Next time I see you, I would suggest maybe you watch out. Which is just this tremendous, like, evil villain shot. But also kind of, a dick, kind of a dick thing to do to someone on TV. Yeah. Also one of the great lines, which is, I'm not going to touch you yet. Like, that <laughs> is so good. Like, that... that is part of the Anderson legacy. It's one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk about is that like, they're good on the mic. They're good in the ring and they just beat the shit out of people. Like that is their legacy. You prefer Tully to, um, Oli. And like, I, I think eventually I will, but right now I'm so in deep in the Oli Arn, the Minnesota wrecking crew stuff that it's really hard to perceive how Tully could be. And I've seen brain busters and stuff like that. Well, they're actually kind of from opposite ends of the heel spectrum, really, because like Oli is like the quintessential, just like big, brash, mean bully heel. And uh, Tully, on the other hand, is, you know, a, a total butt machine chicken shit. So so I think I just enjoy that experience more personally. But I certainly do not. Uh, 
I would certainly never disparage the good goddamn name of Ole Anderson. Yeah, really. I had always kind of, we had talked about it during the Four Horsemen episode uh, that we did. Ole is like, I hate using this term, so underrated. He's such a great heel. He's like one of the all-time great heels I've ever, just like an old school movie villain where there's nothing to him to make him an anti-hero. There's no tricks. There's no gimmicks to it. He's just a bad guy. Like it really works. And he and, and Arn are, and you see Arn, and we talked about this, uh, we talked about how Ron Fuller helped with the promo style. You can also see the ways in which Ole helped Arn be very matter-of-fact in his promos. Yeah, definitely. There's a straightforward curtness uh, to, to, to oh, that's Kurt with an R. Uh, there's a straightforward curtness to, uh, to, to Ole's promos that I think was definitely a, uh, a really, really big influence on Arn because um, somewhere in that reel that you sent me, there was a, uh, just a, a little studio promo of uh, Arn and Ole with, I think it was Tony. As we said, wanted to get a word with Ole Anderson and also, no, well, no. okay, Arn you Anderson. Get a word with Double A, Dick. Double A, Arn Anderson, one of the stars of the NWA. And uh, during that promo, Arn was still doing kind of a jive, kind of 70s, kind of superstar Billy Graham promo. There was either like a daddy or a baby in there, I think. Uh, he got he had the big aviator sunglasses and the inspector gadget fedora on. So, so there definitely was, you could see in that moment, uh, kind of Arn just before he really became the Arn Anderson that we really know, because there definitely was some kind of 70s jive to his promo that, uh, that certainly is not something that we associate with him. When you really start to see the Arn Anderson, we're talking about the Anderson version of Arn Anderson, uh, though I, I think like we've, we've mentioned a couple times, there are parts that you see the origins of the Arn Anderson character that we would all know come to know and love the Arn Anderson character at the like peak of Arn is to me the TV title run he has in 1986 and in particular there's a couple of matches but there's two in particular that really stand out for me as a fan of just good old-fashioned ass-kicking world television title one fall 10 minute time limit Arn Anderson defense against Bill Mulkey that happens on the February 8th 1986 edition of W what's on the network is world championship wrestling. There's a moment in the match. It starts off with Arn talking shit to who I, to the, I think it's Tony Schiavone. This is one shot at stardom for this young man right here. This is his one chance to be somebody. Okay. Arn Anderson. But in general, when Arn starts a match, he talks shit to the crowd and explains like, I'm going to beat the shit out of this guy. And he says, this is this guy's chance to get famous. And they have a normal match. And it starts out like a normal, just everyday 1980s wrestling match. And they keep on getting into breaks. And I think it's the third break. They do two clean breaks. And Arn's being fair to this guy because he knows he can kick his ass at any time. Into the ropes again. Let's see if we get two clean breaks. Oh, Bill Monkey! Now, that was not, maybe, not a good thing for him to do, you may think. But the fans certainly appreciate his attempt. Art Anderson pretty ticked off right now. Well, when it's your shot.
when it's your shot, when it's your big shot, you gotta give it your all. And Bill Moki is gonna regret this. You can see that right now. Arn's like entire demeanor changes in a way that's like, the best way I can describe Arn as like an in-ring actor is like he is the like a leading man talent in a character actor's body. Does that make sense? Like he has this like magnetism to him that he becomes the center of attention, but he doesn't look like he should be. But like when Mulkey breaks dirty, Arn, you know, is just going to beat the living piss out of him and he does and it's amazing oh yeah it's on and it's real when that happens like at first it's just an impersonal exhibition it's you know it's a match it's not important even if you just watch tv you kind of know that bill and randy monk your job guys even if you don't know what the term job guy means you know what i mean it's all just normal but then once that happens it's like pow it's real and arn is pissed off and you know arn beats him up from pillar to post i thought that this was one of the greatest examples i've ever seen of, of someone having a longer match with a jobber and still having it be a really great, credible match where you're not asking like, hey, wait a minute, why is this guy? Sometimes people try to quote unquote make the jobber and it's like they do it too much. And you're like, why does this guy suddenly look so competitive? Like, like I, I always think of like Evan Bourne. I don't know why that's a terrible example. People love Matt Seidel. They're going to hate me. But like someone who, there was a point in time where like he was positioned kind of low middle on the card, but when he would get in important matches, people would go out of their way to, to make him look really good. But it was almost kind of too cute by half because the booking and his card positioning never matched up with it. And that was not the case here at all with Bill Mulkey. Like there was no question of, oh, why hasn't Arn won yet? Why is this match going on? Because like there, there's a ton of little things he does. Like he does no near falls in the match. Like, Every time he hits a move, he freaking picks him up and does the next big move. And then he smiles at the crowd or he, you know, he kind of uh, prowls around and looks intimidating. But he doesn't pin him and let him kick out of his moves. You know what I mean? Because he's dominating him and he's just beating him up for fun. He's not really focused on winning. And all those little things explain why, like, hey, some guys beat this jobber on the first move in 30 seconds. But this is why you're seeing Arn dismantle him for close to 10 minutes. It was a masterful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really, like, one of the more incredible performances you'll see from both of them. Like, Bill Mulkey does a great job of just getting his ass handed to him like there's this real like bill mulkey you you almost get the vibe that bill mulkey's been around the studio a lot and arn anderson's kind of a dick to him and this was like his one opportunity to take a swing at arn anderson and it's not that bill mulkey doesn't look like he's a jobber he's absolutely the mulkey the mulkeys are jobbers and a half they're like barry horowitz it's that level of the barry horowitz angle was literally well it was an imitation of an angle that barry horowitz had already done which was an imitation of the mocky angle where they won a match yeah exactly yeah. like <laughs> he they are the the quintessential jobbers but you watch by making arn both completely destroy bill mokey but also making bill mokey look like there's a part where he reverses into a hip toss and Arn's just like, all right, this shit is fucking done. You can, Arn has spent, uh, if you watch week to week, the past couple of weeks talking about, and he does after this match and after the next match we talk about, talk about how great the competition is, that even a guy like Bill Mulkey, he says he has his one chance at greatness. That's his, like one of his big lines. Bill Mulkey doesn't feel like he could win, but it feels like he is the worst guy in a roster filled with people who could beat a guy like Arn Anderson on a given night, but Arn Anderson, when he's on, 
is almost unstoppable. Like it does a really good job of balancing those two things, which is like Arn Anderson's great. And he will try, he, his one problem, if he has a problem is he's kind of uh, not flashy, but he's a bit of a showboater. He's a guy that will tackle you, like sack you and then like celebrate over your prone body. Yeah. He's a, he's a mean dick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what's great is like the crowd starts to get into it because he's so over the top, not over the top. He's so palpably good at his job. Like Arn Anderson is that the crowd can't help, but be like, fuck, you're so good at this. It's really incredible how he turns the crowd while he's beating the shit out of a job guy it, for him because what he's doing is so impressive. It's like, oh man, you're just, it's like if Michael Jordan just decided, like, I'm going to score 30 points and then did it. Like, that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, in part one, we talked about how, you know, guys who are in that kind of top third of the card who are the heels, they're like, it's so important to making the show work because they're the ones who kind of have to, create the illusion of all this competition and who have to really create the heat that makes you care about both the, the title chases and the personal angles and stuff most of the time. And I think this match was like a great example of, of someone who had all those skills really showcasing them, literally being like, Hey, you could put a cardboard cutout in this ring. It's like you were saying the famous quote that Arn had about Kurt Hennig, right? That he could wrestle a stack of bricks and it would be entertaining. It's like Arn Anderson in that match with, uh, with Bill Malky, as much as Bill Malky was a very accomplished job guy and knew how to take all the bumps and could do all sorts of spectacular stuff that was really special for TV, like, let's let's call a spade a spade. Arn might as well literally be wrestling a spade. Uh, <laughs> and, and all of his great heel, hold the territory together skills are just are just so on display. And the pin at the end is fantastic. Like you said, he doesn't do any near falls, but he does like a cheap ass pin at the end because like you said, he's a dick. And that's like, to me, the ultimate part of this match is that Arn is such a great dickhead as a wrestler that you understand why he never meaningfully turned face. Like he was cheered, right? Like especially latter uh, editions of Har the Four Horsemen. He's considered like a horseman emeritus, and it really works for him, like a legacy fan favorite. But this is like why? Because he was so good at being a dick. You could, he's like, and we said this, and this is something that the Four Horsemen had to deal with. They were so cool and so good, and that's the important thing. They were so unbelievably good at their jobs that when you have matches against nobodies, you could see why the Anderson, the Anderson, sorry, why the four horsemen were so important to the territory is that they gave you somebody to, and the, it's that idea of like, they are the bad guys, but the other guys are just less bad guys. So like if you, the bad guys are good enough, you'll cheer for them when the good guy or the less bad guys aren't around. The ones that you're supposed to cheer for the like anti-heroes, you'll cheer for the villains because they're awesome. If the villains are awesome enough and the four horsemen and Arn and Rick in particular, at least for me, like I like Telly and I like Oli, but like those two in particular and Arn especially really are the kind of things that you want to watch every week, not because necessarily like they get you excited for the matches. It's just, you know, who no matter, no matter who Arn faces and they do a TV title open challenge thing, the way they do with like the U S title now, or they have in the past, in the recent past done with the U S title, that 
is what you're you're watching to see Arn star in the Schick match of the night, which is a TV title match. Yeah, I think Crockett was really one of the first places where that kind of optional second narrative started to form, where it was like, look, if you if you don't really care for for Dusty and Magnum, there's this whole second rail where you can be cheering the Midnight Express and the Four Horsemen, and that's cool too. In fact, really, it's cooler and better than the people who are cheering the folks that you're supposed to cheer. I mean, Arn was was part of the group that, that really helped solidify that narrative uh, along with the, the fans in Greensboro. But I, I love seeing in this match him fighting to keep the heat. Like we said, right, he doesn't do any near falls, and then at the end he, he hits the gourd buster and he puts his knee on Bill Malky's chest. He, like, knees on him and does a little bit of a flex, almost like a Chris Jericho old-school type pin. And he gets the win, but Bill Malky kicks out at, like, three and a quarter. So it's like it gives you room to think like, well, geez, he was beating him up from pillar to post and he gave him all his moves. And like Bill Malky, who loses all the time, he still almost kicked out. Like how arrogant was that? He should have hooked his leg. And I mean, but how tough is Bill Malky? Ah, Exactly. Exactly. So it just works on every level. It's like he keeps his heat and he leaves Malky at least as whole as he found him, or as you're saying, maybe even a little better. Now there's room to wonder. Oh, like, definitely higher opinion of him. Because like I said, I've been watching, I was watching week after week after week. I've seen a lot of these matches, these like TV title open challenge matches. This is one of the best ones. And it does, there's no reason for it to be. But it is because you have professionals in there being professional and doing professional things. There's no other way to put it. It is like, to me, a quintessential professional wrestling match that, like, I am happy that I've been doing this long, like, long tr- trail, down, like, long walk down the trail of Arn Anderson video, because um, it's an awesome, awesome short little match. It's like a little, I, I, I like this term, it's like a little hidden gem. It's really, like, it's worth going out of your way to find. Like, a, we usually tell you what's essential viewing, what's, like, really essential viewing. This is, like, to me, if you want to get Arn Anderson in a bite-sized sense, this is, and why the NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions at the time is the major league of professional wrestling, it's this match. Because it's a job guy versus their mid-card champion, and it's like compelling television that makes you want to see the mid-card champion the next week. And you realize the strength of the competition in the company because of guys like Bill Mulkey. It is just an awesome... Uh, this and the Tag Team Survivor Series match and the next match we're talking about are like three of my favorite matches that we've covered as essential viewings. Like, I love this match. I think in the course of this show, Nick, I've, I've, I've won you over to the side of wrestling. And another one of these matches, another one of these like quintessential matches that are, are really important to watch for me to understand Arn Anderson is the Sam Houston versus Arn Anderson TV, another TV title match uh, on the April 12th, 1986 episode of WCW. Uh, it is in Sam Houston's not a jobber. But he's a job under the stars. Like he is, he is much higher on the list than Bill Mulkey is. But he's still not somebody that should like really have a chance against Arn Anderson. And there are moments when you're really like, I know Arn Anderson's going to win this because I know literally, like I had just read the history of the te- the TV title, so I knew for a fact he wasn't going to lose. But you watch and you're like, is he gonna? 
is he going to lose this? Like, is he going to fuck up because he's not paying attention? Because, like, one of the best, and I, I've seen hours and hours and hours of Arn Anderson matches at this point, there's this incredible spot where Arn throws Sam out of the ring and turns around. And Sam Houston is rightfully pissed and, like, runs back in the ring. And Arn turns around and he just starts beating the shit, like, really popping Arn. And Arn is bumping like a madman. And it's this super hot, like, minute-long spot. It's just, it's like the quintessential, this is why Arn Anderson was such a great hand spot. Of just, like, he makes Sam Houston look like a world champion. Oh, no, there's a spot in there where, yeah, like, in that moment where you're describing where, yeah, he's literally, Sam is just throwing punches. And Arn is bumping and feeding up into the next punch. And, like, it sounds so simple, but it's really masterful. And even before that, just the lockup of this match is when when old-timey wrestlers talk about a lockup really meaning something and really setting the tone at the beginning. They just like lock up and push each other around the ring and separate for like the first 90 seconds of the match. It, 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 it doesn't look hokey or, or like when you watch some of those kind of Hulkamania WWF matches where they do that, you know how it looks not so great. Well, in this match, it looks fucking great. Just like so intense and so tied up. And like, like I was saying too, it's like Sam Houston doesn't really do that much in this match. It's kind of a lot of Arn working around him and like setting up spots for, for, to, to be hoisted by his own petard. But like, as you're saying, it's so effective at getting Sam Houston over. And Sam Houston's and, like a really talented athlete. So it works. Like he hits a drop kick at some point. There's just, Oh, he also, he also misses a drop kick headed into the finish where he just falls right on his face. It's so incredible, but, but a, a little inside baseball on this one is that this is in 86 right around the time that Sam Houston and baby doll would have been getting married or definitely would have been together. And that got Sam Houston, a ton of heat uh, with dusty. I think we've talked about this before because according to legend, he liked to leave, you know, main event Valley should be with main event guys, not with undercard guys. Uh, so infer what you will from that about what else he thought, but with kind of Arn and Tully being other kind of famous outspoken uh political disapprovers or dissenters uh against dusty i was very intrigued with the timing in this match that it seemed like Arn really went out there and went out of his way to make sam houston look like a million bucks when maybe some of the political tides had kind of turned against him you also bring up like rick having read uh to be the man his book you understand that rick also didn't like i love dusty some of this stuff is not unwatchable but it is infuriating to watch because you know how much Dusty's doing blank to make blank look bad or make blank look good. That it kind of like the meta narrative of that era is really like palpable in the writing. And you just know from hearing everybody just being like fucking Dusty. But like part of that rebellion against dusty is like rick flair's commentary on this match is so fucking good you know we would talk about arn anderson fine athlete but sam houston one of the fastest rising stars in in this sport well tony as i've said so many times in the past he's got the crowd fired up right now he wouldn't be part of jim crockett promotion he wouldn't be wrestling in the national wrestling alliance and he wouldn't be competing against Arn Anderson if he wasn't a top-notch wrestler. I hate wrestlers doing guest commentary in modern wrestling, but why on earth does it work so well every time in the context of studio wrestling? We saw it with Ole, 
And again, we saw it here with Rick. I mean, both of them just put Arn over the moon. And again, it was a case of like what he was doing in the ring and what they were saying on the commentary, even though they're not professional commentators, it just perfectly matched up. Yeah. It reminds me there's one person I think that's actually a good commentator in modern wrestling and it's the Miz because the Miz will just sit there and put over whoever is in the ring because he's treating it like his job is to be a commentator on the match. Like you may not in an interview backstage though. I think that's also the case that he does put people over. Like I, I said this at the end of last episode, the Miz reminds me so much of Arn because he does stuff like that Arn and Ric Flair and that like old school NWA styles. Cause like he does a lot of this shit, but like, Rick Flair's commentary is all about how good Sam Houston is and how great, like transcendently great and perfect Arn is. Like he talks about like Arn's a big fucking dude and you don't totally realize it because he's so quick, but Rick Flair is like, basically like he could have done anything he wanted to. He's a 250, 260 pounds, six foot one guy. He could have done anything. And you're watching him like do these crazy bumps and these crazy moves. And you're like, Oh yeah. He just looks like a top notch athlete. Where like, if you were to see Arn in a picture, you might be like, Oh, he probably could beat up some people. But like Rick Flair really makes the connection between Arn, the like big mean character and Arn Anderson slash Marty Lundy, the like exceptional borderline transcendent wrestling athlete. Yeah, there's one spot in the match where where Rick is saying like, oh, Arn has whatever he's saying. He has uh, 40. In, he's like, uh, what, what's he saying? Uh, hold on. There's one point in the match where he's saying like, oh, Arn has a 20 inch neck and 30 inch thighs and a whatever inch waist and stuff. And he, yeah, he's going on about just like how he is a total machine and like of course this guy is a great pro wrestler because what else would this guy possibly be doing with his life it's it's something that like we said in the first episode that like or i said specifically i said in the first episode that Arn was kind of always portraying himself on camera as as rick's really reliable friend the dude who had his back at the bar, the dude who wouldn't let people say bad stuff about him when he wasn't in the room. You know what I mean? But this was that moment of seeing like why that loyalty is deserved. And again, the way these studio wrestling shows used to work, they're so tight because it like, it does more for, it tells you more about flair. It tells you more about, Arn, it tells you more about the horsemen. You know what I mean? It's just so damn effective. And they can hear each other. So like in the Mulkey episode, uh, the Mulkey match, Tony Schiavone says something and Arn turns to him and is like, basically like, go fuck yourself, Tony. I'm going to beat this dude's ass just for you. It does. Now that is a look of shock. Yes, there is a case of somebody being overconfident. And like in the Sam Houston Arn match, like he starts, Rick starts shouting for Arn and Arn's like, this is for you champ. And it doesn't come off as like a sycophant thing. It comes off as like, he's my best friend. I'm so happy he's out here supporting me. I support him because I know how hard he works to be champion. But in a moment, it's just like this quick thing that like there's real love, like brother, like like real affection between the two of them that comes across. Oh, yeah. 
Just like there was real affection between the two worst bullies on your high school yeah, football. Yeah, exactly. And well, I think what's crazy about uh, Rick and Arn is just like how easily they could have turned them babyface because they're so clearly the cream of the crop in terms of actual talent that there are moments where you're like, if they don't double down on these guys being evil, they're going to be the biggest stars in the company. Like when uh, Oli comes back after having his leg broken uh, by the Dusty, Dusty and Dusty's gang, he... That, like, run of the Four Horsemen is just, like, they are on fire. And there's almost no reason to root for the roads until they just start doing more and more bad heel shit. And, like, this match is an example of the kind of shit that that Arn and Rick were capable of when they weren't, like, like, they when they wanted to be, like, charming is the wrong word but like when they wanted to be the kind of wrestlers everybody like get other i'm trying to think of the best word to put it when they were trying to be like palpably team players in a way that almost felt like a like a statement in and of itself does that make sense like they were so openly a supportive of the nwa and and the, themselves through that prism of they are the best in the NWA that it like, it is the foundation of the show is that you believe the NWA is great because the horsemen who are palpably great tell you that it's great, even though they're running through everybody, right? They're like, we're really good, but we're really good. And we're beating the shit out of really good people, which makes us the best. It's like this, really cool way to make blow smoke up your own ass i guess would be the best way to describe it oh yeah right definitely it's like it's like you were saying at the beginning it's about promos it's like you compliment your opponent really it's a compliment to yourself because if you beat them well then you beat someone who deserves this tremendous compliment and if you lost to someone then at least you lost to someone who was deserving of great compliments you know what i mean and, and i think it gets back to something we said, I said ad nauseum in part one, which was Arn and the horseman. But as, as you keep saying, Arn really is their central figure, even more so than Flair. And in part, that's because Flair had a lot of responsibilities and therefore Arn was more reliable in a very specific way. Not that I'm saying Flair was unreliable, um, but, but he really was the anchor. He was the tent pole. You know what I mean? You know, just holding everything up. And part of that was credibility that there's a, a promo one of those just little studio promos that was on that reel that you sent me, I think it was after possibly this last match, or maybe it was after the Bill Malky match, where he just looks at the camera and he says, you know, uh, Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, uh, the Midnight Express, that's who it is. Like, we are the ones who, who are really carrying the standards. And it's yours again, successfully defending the title. It's looked like he got you upset at one time during the match. Much Tony like Giovanni. Baby Doll has gotten you upset in, in recent weeks, I'm sure. Tony Giovanni, I could have beat him just by mailing him a letter across the dressing room. You understand what I'm saying? He would have probably just walked away if it hadn't been for national television. Dusty Rhodes. Where is he? You're very, very presumptuous by the absence of your presence. Now, I don't understand where America's team is today. Where's Magnum? Where's Dusty? Where's Manny Fernandez? Where, where are they when I'm out here? Now, a lot of people come out and they say, Arn, we don't like you. 
We don't agree with what you do. We don't like the way you do things. But the bottom line is, if you take a poll of this studio, they'll tell you who the real athletes are. It's not Dusty Rhodes. It's not Magnum. It's not many. It's guys like Double A, Ric Flair, the Midnight Express, guys like Tully Blanchard. That's who's making things happen. And Tony Giovanni, if you took a poll of the people that buy tickets in every arena in the country, they'll tell you the people that are making it happen are the Four Horsemen and the Midnight Express. I'm going to sum it up today by telling you anybody turns on a TV set, anytime you see me, this is on the line. Dusty Rose doesn't defend his national heavyweight title every day. Nobody, especially Magnum, nobody comes out on national television every week and defends their title. So, except, that's right, just me. So what I'm facing day in, day out is double indemnity, but when you're 250 pounds, a cultured bunk, I'll position strategically, all looking just like it ought to look, and it's not all just for show. Do anything you want. It's been your pleasure. But yeah, I think in that clip you sort of heard uh, something that was a, a shoot brother, <laughs> something that was very, very real to him, and, and based on the reaction, very, very real to the studio. And uh, you've alluded to it even a couple of times that like he and Flair and Oli, that they all had this incredible chemistry, in particular with Tony Schiavone. Uh, where like when they stood next to him and he held the mic for them, he just beamed like Shivani. I don't want to undersell the role that he had in making them seem really important. Like the, the only Thunderbolt Patterson uh, confrontation that we talked about earlier, all Tony does is stand between them and hold the stick and his like eyes trace back and forth between them and his head will go slightly up or slightly down or an eyebrow will go slightly up or slightly down. And it's all just super duper impactful. I mean, just the, the way that the, as much as you can watch this era of wrestling now and, and production wise, it seems kind of dinky or kind of lacking or kind of dingy, but at the same time, they just accomplished so much. And part of accomplishing so much was that it was really a team sport and all hands were on deck. And I think that, you know, that, 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 that in some ways, not to make a union joke about wrestling, but in some ways, like Arn was really the shop foreman in that movement. Like even when they didn't trust the booker or even when they came back and, and, you know, uh, Jim Hurd was in charge and they didn't trust that anybody knew about wrestling actually had the final say, you know what I mean? Like even in times of doubt, you could believe in the four horsemen, particularly as embodied by Arn Anderson. Yeah. He is the leader in a way that like, Ric Flair, again, we're not saying he's not reliable, he's not, but he had responsibilities that existed outside of the territory and outside of the four horsemen in a very real way that they had to deal with as a television show. And Arn fills that without skipping a beat. Like, it is really, like you said, a team effort. And I, I want to take some time uh, before we we uh, <laughs> before we get into the spine buster um, that happens in this match. Tony Schiavone is one of the best commentators of all time like really incredible during this era like just he is one of the stars of the show and you don't realize it until you watch him week after week and you're not interested per se in his thoughts on the matter but you understand that like he is 
the mean Gene Okerlund. I mean, he's obviously not mean Gene. Mean Gene's like a special entity in and of himself. I think he's more of like, he's even more you than mean Gene is. Like Tony feels like you, especially as a, as a young male white wrestling fan. It's very easy to imagine yourself being Tony. And I think that as much as Tony's over the top reactions later in his WCW run kind of became the, the step of legend, like Tony was so genuine. And most often his reaction was exactly the one that you were naturally having. Yeah. Like he also, one of my favorite things is like, he finds Ric Flair actually funny, but not when Ric Flair's making cruel jokes, but when like Ric Flair's just being Ric Flair, like he really, you can tell he wants to like everybody that he's working with, if that makes sense in a way that he doesn't have like a predetermined belief about the people he's working with in the way that like David Crockett does. He comes in with the assumption that everybody he's dealing with is like on a spectrum of good and bad. And you have good, bad, good slash uh, like heroic days and bad slash evil days. But he treats it like this is not the first time he's interviewing the person each time, but that like they're working with fundamentally a clean slate unless they just did something evil that really works. He's neutral without being naive and he's disinterested, not uninterested. He sees the value that these people have. And and one of the big things is the constant talk about the quality of the performers, even if you don't like the like them or don't like them you have to respect them thing is one of the most important things on the show and tony shivani like really i think he's good in wcw even late period wcw well not late late period but like you know nwo wcw i think he's a very good commentator and very underrated this era is like some of the best commentating you're ever going to see and and a lot of it is that it's such a strong cast of characters and it's such a strong team that you just it's iron sharpens iron stuff where like he knew that he had to keep up with rick flair for lack of a better term as his job not as a character but like he had to be as good at his job as someone like arn anderson or rick flair was at theirs without like or the show wouldn't work as well Without question, to quote Tony Schiavone. <laughs> and uh, speaking of not working as well, um, so this also, it's the second appearance of, but it's the other great thing about Arn is how, in, like I mentioned earlier, how innovative he is in the ring. He projects this old school style performer, but he, like, the moves he did and the way he worked are so modern that you could have thrown Arn Anderson into modern wrestling and he wouldn't he wouldn't be Scott Dawson or or uh Dash Wilder. He'd be like a real like he'd be like Miz level. Like I feel like he'd have like a world championship because he's just like such a high quality in-ring competitor and his offense it feels old school but it's really innovative and the spine buster that he hits in this sam houston match is just like rick flair basically if he was sitting would have jumped out of his chair oh my goodness brother that was a double inverted par slam specially put together by double a oh yeah definitely it actually it was so good it actually hit on one of my pet peeves sometimes with matches in like, let's say like new Japan uh, where it's like, Holy smoke, you just nailed your move. It was the most perfect thing I've ever seen and heard. And then they do a near fall and he picks him up and does the gourd buster. And that's the finish. It's like, Oh, that move was pretty. You just should have just said, said, stay down, you know? And the gourd busters were really like awesome move. Like 
he very very rarely does it not look great but most of the time it just looks like he's beat the shit out of this guy and is just like putting the cherry on top of the match it's really like he because he has a spine buster and stuff like that it, it's not unnecessary but it's just on the edge in considering how mean it is like it's just this really mean for people who don't know the gourd buster is like a suplex where you kind of it's a reverse suplex basically or an inverted suplex i should say so you pick the guy up like you're gonna do a vertical suplex but then you like slam him down what's supposed to be face first on the mat with kind of like a ddt style drop for you depending on how you're selling it uh but it's just like an awesome awesome finisher that like we don't think about a lot like we don't think about arn anderson's finishers but like or his move set per se because he does a lot of like specific things over and over again that you kind of they just become part of like the 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 arn anderson experience but like when you watch it and you watch everybody else that's in the ring he's really doing crazy innovative stuff and it's also because he's so young he's like 28 when this is happening and he looks much older he looks like we said last week uh last episode he looks like he's 40 he like came into the industry at age 40 um but like this match is like clearly one of those like this guy's in his prime and is trying to see what works and what doesn't but everything he does is so professional that everything works it's just what works best and like this spine buster is off the charts <laughs> yeah both the moves were i loved uh you were talking about the the greatness of his gourd buster one thing i'll say and i think i think some wrestlers who work in nxt should maybe observe this but uh, when he does that finish, he lifts them way over his head. It looks impressive. And then he puts them down perfectly flat. <laughs> he is not he is not asking anybody to do anything stupid, but it still looks super impressive and super dominant. I loved uh, I loved Flair calling the spine buster though. What is he what is he called? Double inverted like, power ah, slam, I believe. It's a split legged double inverted power slam just for you, Shimani. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. They're so awesome. But he, but he is, he is stumbling over his words. But it just adds to the effect that he is like, he is like having an accident in his pants in sheer excitedness and impressedness. Yeah. He, he really does. He puts it like I said. It's like Arn always played that like dutiful best friend of Flair, and this was a great example of Flair giving the love all the way. Oh back. yeah, Arn. You get the feeling that Ric Flair and. and Ric Flair is happy every day Arn Anderson doesn't want his title, but in a way that he would never mention out loud. Like, it's not that he's afraid of Arn Anderson. He just knows how fucking good Arn is. And it's not that he's blowing smoke up his ass. It's genuine brother shit. Like, or in this case, cousin shit. Like, he loves watching Arn Anderson wrestle, but there's always this idea of, like, he is kind of in awe of how good Arn is. And he does it. It's almost subconscious. He He's thankful there's this joy that he has because he doesn't have to worry about ever wrestling Arn. Like it's implied that they're never, and they really don't like they have one match and they, they break up a little bit, but even that's in the context of like, we love each other. And this is just about like brother settling stuff like this in the same way that the last matches is a really incredible job of like, it does a really incredible job of showing you how good Arn Anderson is against anybody. This match shows you how good Arn Anderson is against somebody with actual talent. And it also is a really, does a really good job of highlighting the relationship between Arn and Ric Flair, like these two matches. And I think if you can find the Thunderbolt Patterson, Ole Anderson promo, uh, 
which we're going to link to, uh, Dave's going to send out. Uh, so you'll see, um, those two things are like the essential viewings of like, you, you really got to see them to understand aren't and to understand what made the NWO, the NWO, the NWA great at a time where everybody's like, Oh, this is the best wrestling ever. If you watch, it really is like the best professional wrestling ever written basically yeah it's definitely a, a great time in the wrestling business i mean you specifically said the number earlier 86 i mean 86 was a tremendous year for crockett and really for the nwa who who kind of by that part point were were kind of starting to climb on crockett's back really yeah and i think in both of these matches uh, the reason i, I love all of this but the, these two matches the the bill mulkey and the sam houston matches really just explain better than almost anything else you can watch like what made arn anderson great what made the nwo nwa i did that twice (laughs) uh what made the nwo (sighs) what made the nwa great uh and what made the four horsemen great it is like it seems really simple to say oh that just watch these two matches and you'll totally understand or quote unquote get arn anderson but i feel like these two matches, because you can pick up almost any Arn Anderson match, but these two are like the quintessential examples of it, or like the purest examples of what he's trying to do. Like Arn Anderson, the joy of Arn Anderson is in the week to week stuff, but like we're also in the next part of this uh, talk about the tag team history. But for this, the singles and the beginning of this like NWA uh, for not beginning, but like the the rise of the four horsemen is one of the great storylines in the history of wrestling. So like this is the like cream of the crop wrestling, and you're kind of just seeing like almost like a like a historically great basketball team's best season. Like seeing random games from that season when they score like their best players all score thirty points. It's like kind of like that. And and these two matches in particular for me having watched a lot were like just the perfect examples of like a, a triple double game by Arn Anderson where you understand why he you may put Dusty, but I have him, Bobby, Hulk, and Flair is like the four people on my Mount Rushmore of 80s wrestling. And it's like matches like this more so than any, any great pay-per-view matches he had. And he has a lot of great pay-per-view matches, but like, these are the kind of matches that are the bread and butter, bread and butter of the Arn Anderson experience to me. Yeah, definitely. I think when we're talking about someone who is maybe like the last, or I don't say the last great, because I mean, Steve Austin was a territorial wrestler too, but really one of the last great kind of fully formed territorial wrestlers who grew up in the territories before, you know, in his early 20s, before becoming a national TV star in his mid 20s. You know what I mean? And I think that you were absolutely right to kind of look at television matches when talking about a wrestler like that in the pre-pay-per-view era, that just sort of seeing how did they carry themselves, how did they promote their character and promote the relevant angles in their territory and promote the other wrestlers in their territory. I think that that was the right approach to to take here with Arn in part one of Essential Viewing. I know maybe as you were alluding to, some people are excited for us to get to the kind of more well-known or more famous or quote-unquote bigger kind of modern pay-per-view era stuff. But I think if you want to understand the way that wrestling really works and can function at a high level for a long time, it's really, really important 
to to go back and look at these kind of peak era territory TV shows. Like there's a lot to learn from them. And as you said, there's kind of a lot to see about the the origins of Arn Anderson. And frankly, as you keep saying too, it's impressive just how darn good he was, how fast. We said it a bunch. Like it's hard to have a show about Arn Anderson and not just be like, he's the fucking best. He's the best wrestler we've ever seen. Just watch this. Best American wrestler, I think. Like I've, I've seen enough Japanese guys to know that like, he'd be really great in japan but like he's at least on there he is like in terms of a uh like a a, he is the best hand of all time i think like he is the best mechanic that you could ever imagine he's yeah the 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 perfect pro wrestler if you if you took all the things that made a wrestling star not all the things that make someone like a crossover star or a mainstream star but just a wrestling star i think that that he's pretty perfect across the board yeah so now that we've solved uh what made the nwa great which is arn anderson i wanted to ask a question um that i've been thinking about this entire episode which is that there's a thing that bill simmons does it's it's a vintage he likes to say like oh the 2012 version of kevin durant is the version of kevin durant i would pick uh so i I, with that idea in mind I, i say this how crazy would i be to say 1986 Arn Anderson is my first overall pick if I'm starting a wrestling company in 2018. Wow. Well, I think if you were building a company or an organization or a territory that you had a five-year plan for, if you had a five-year vision and you knew for sure that Arn Anderson was going to be with you all five of those years and he was going to be healthy I think that he is a defensible first overall pick. Um, I know that that sounds a little crazy because uh, I'm always someone who, anytime you ask me about a draft, in fact, there's a, they did a big fantasy draft over at the wrestling estate where I write sometimes, and I did not participate in it. But just looking over their draft picks, even in the first and second round, it's funny how you know we, we have this tendency to pick our favorites and not necessarily think about drawing and star power. And so usually I would be someone to say, well, your first overall pick needs to be like a Hulk Hogan or a John Cena, like an all-time big drawing star, you know, 1987 Hulk Hogan or whatever, uh, 2000 and whatever, 12 John Cena. You know what I mean? But but anyway, but if you're not going to use the first overall pick to take someone who's a transcendent top of the hill draw like that. I think your next best option would be 1986 Arn Anderson. Yeah, because to me, like the big thing is the I have him. He is like an offensive tackle where I can build my entire team around his Hall of Fame level talent at a specific thing that is very hard to find. He can carry shows without being a star. He doesn't have the ego of a star in a traditional sense where I have to worry in the way that you have to worry about like a Hogan and he can work with anybody. And I think that's why like I would personally make him a number one. Like if I had my druthers, he's the guy I think I would start a company with uh, without ignoring the concerns that you bring up, which is the draw. I also think that, he is a good enough performer that you could make him a main event draw by tweaking some parts of his character, maybe not bringing in like a manager per se, but bringing in an executive consultant style JJ Dillon character specifically for Arn, where 
Arn's not as worried, and, and this is something I mentioned in the previous episode, Arn doesn't have the same kind of ego that Ric Flair does, which is why they're compatible. But if you were to, the Arn Anderson character, I should say, I think you could create an Anderson main event heel champion thing, a Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby the Brain Heenan style thing, because he's so good on the mic. Because that's the other thing. He is a great at promos so you don't have to have the worry well he's just good in the ring he's good in the ring he's good at getting other people over in the ring he's also really great at getting other people over out of the ring and getting himself over on the mic like he is to me a uh, pardon the pun total package wrestler that happened to not have the best look for what a main event character should have been or was at the time but I think if I'm starting a company now that's less of an issue, like people would just love that he's a great, like Daniel Bryan comes close in terms of that for me, where it's like Daniel Bryan doesn't have a traditionally great look. He has a look that he makes work for him. And I think Arn Anderson as that like really fuck you, tough fuck you up kind of like dad character would really work as a big time heel champion. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love the the comparison to like Bachwinkle and Heenan. I could definitely see that. And like you said, he's got the great thing where like, he doesn't need the manager and the manager doesn't even need to be there every match, but that's just someone for him to, to play with because as, as good a promo as he was, I think that he was always at his best in those promos where it was either, you know, with Ole or one of those kind of, uh, I don't even really know what the term for them would be kind of those kind of magazine style, you know, territory promos where all four of them are there and each guy, you know, talks for 90 seconds or whatever. I think that's when he really shined. I think he was at his best playing off of someone else who was really good. So I'm not saying I wouldn't pay to watch your territory and think it was much better than my territory that had 1987 Hulk Hogan, but I think maybe I'd make a few more dollars. Yeah. It's not about money, okay? Actually, is even Arn would say it's about money. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think uh, we're good. Uh, did you have any plugs this week? Absolutely. I mean, my first plug is not even a plug. Is a big thank you again to uh, Henry for for giving us kind of the big inspiration to do this Arn Anderson blowout. It's one of my favorite show that we've done in a super long time. Uh, and another similar shout out again to uh, Ron Fuller for chatting with us and really informing this conversation in way more ways than I really predicted. Uh, so you should definitely check out his podcast, The Studcast, uh, one of my very favorites, a great source for history. Also check out his website, tnstud.com. Uh, as for me, uh, you can follow me on the Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. That's Dave is in my name, Writes is in the thing I do, and Junk as in the thing that is found in the trunk. I am still a contributor at The Wrestling Estate, and recently they've been publishing a ton of content that's got my fingerprints all over it. Uh, we mentioned Gene Okerlund earlier in this show. We did a Gene mean, as the Iron Sheik would say, and as I just stumbled but turned it into a joke. Uh, we did a Gene mean uh, memorial roundtable. We also did some kind of year-end wrap-up stuff on 2018 that I thought was pretty strong. And our top 100 wrestlers of 2018 part, which I contributed to heavily, uh, should be coming out in the next week as well. So lots of good Dave goodness coming up on the wrestling estate. But the best way to know about that is just to follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. Yeah, and you can check me out at the Nickster. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. Uh, we will, as I announced at the end of last episode, we will be pre uh, premiering the podcast beyond at the beginning of next month. Uh, there's some scheduling reasons. And also, having done this episode, I realized 
how in depth you have to start, which is about a year before the actual war games to understand how the war games came about. So we really want to blow it out. We want to do it right. So we are pushing it back uh, a couple of weeks. Um, and like I you heard at the end of the last episode, uh, we played Dylan's song, Dylan Roth's song uh, for the show, which is called Sharpshooter. Uh, we made that, spe- we had to make that specifically for the show. So thank you, Dylan. Uh, and we are bringing back videos uh we are still trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do um but we are definitely bringing back videos by the end of february they're just a lot of work so i don't want to promise anything and then not give it so uh yeah so that's about it uh so dave did you have anything you wanted to finish with before we uh hop along on to part two of the Arn Anderson experience, which will be coming out tomorrow. I just thought it was important to know that uh, Pocket Cast is, in fact, just a front for a global spy ring. So if you're listening on podcast, watch out. All your datas are infiltrated. <laughs> okay, David, back here with the World Tag Team Champions, Ivan Nikita Kolov. Take a look at a former partner of yours, Ole Anderson. Yes, that is right, comrade. I'm glad to see that this Ole Anderson has listened to our good advice and rid himself of this garbage that he was hanging around with. Here among the poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed, let me have for you to bite your tongue secure. 